So Britain has an energy security minister. That really will make all the difference, won't it? Uh, they can uh, exert or choose to exert no control over the really big players uh, like BP and Shell, whose profits doubled as uh, the costs to everyone else doubled over the last energy insecure year. Uh, they won't uh, do anything, will they, about the prepayment meter scandal, which saw British Gas and others of the big six forcibly enter people's houses to install prepayment meters, essentially making them able to disconnect themselves and freeze. Uh, we look at all of this and at the Scotwind issue within Scotland, uh, where the Scottish Government stands accused of having sold off licences for wind in the North Sea at far less than the going rate. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, Johnson. Welcome to this week's uh, Leslie Riddick podcast. And uh, I think you can tell by the, the gravel voice tone that I am I am up because of the, the, the cold that I'm, I'm getting through for doing voiceovers yet again for anything that requires the, the sonorous tones of some that could be a Tory front bencher. <laughs> right. Well, anyway. be, you know, if you could, you could be in with a shout then for the energy security minister, couldn't you? Ah. Just go give us a case, a wee burst of aim in well, charge of. Uh, well, I'm in charge of this, and I'm, all I've got to say is that what we've got to examine is the fact of the whole implications of we. Right, are, so that's uh, fine. You've yes. got the job. Yes, you've got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, Sad, I get, I get. Sadly not. Sadly not. But anyway, <laughs> doubtless we will come to this reshuffle yes. that will be of no consequence whatsoever later. Anyway, yes. let me not interrupt you in your stride, Mr. Joyce. Oh, oh yeah, what, what a stride I've got. Yes, but but, but hey, yeah, terrific uh, video footage and photographs taken uh, last Tuesday of the Lights On for Scotland uh, event, Leslie. It, it, from I'm a, just from laughing a... because, honestly, <laughs> it's just... Okay. It, it, I mean, the weather actually could... Well, it could have been worse. I mean, let's just right. face it, it could always <laughs> have been worse, right? But, I mean, it really was quite unbelievable. It was that sort of way. I mean, some of the pe people I was speaking to as we, I, I mean, I've still got this blinking sciatica, which is just so difficult. So um, sort of standing upright in two and a half, for two and a half hours mm -hmm. in sort of, you know, a windy, wet, uh, cold set of conditions probably didn't really help. But the amazing thing was that people actually turned out. And, you know, I wrote an article for The National because, of course, all every, anyone ever cares about is yeah. its size matters. It's how many people were there. And, um, OK, in the end, I think it was about 300 to 400 people. So, of course, everyone would go, you know, that's nothing. And the thing is, if there'd been 30,000, would it mm -hmm. have got any more publicity? Yeah. Probably not. Um, the, the thing was, and we did debate whether or not to do it, because I'll quite grant you that, you know, just marking an historic hurt, if you like, which is being dragged out of the EU against our will three years ago. You know, it's like it's not the same as the day that the Supreme Court made a verdict. You know, there was an urgency about that. It was new um, and it had, you know, it had everything to do with, you know, Scotland being basically kicked into a bucket right there and then on that day. And of course, that's quite a motivator to get your, you know, get your backside in gear and get down there. Plus, actually, the weather wasn't just quite so bad. So this one was always going to be a bit more sort of difficult. But we thought still a date. And this is what we're trying to get onto now is that, um, you know, there's going to already be media interest circling around Brexit. So can we place Scotland into the middle of that? And actually, you can do it. I mean, I counted in the end. There was about 11, there was 11 uh, st stories in the in newspapers, including one in the States, one in England. Um, and that's beyond the coverage in the national, which was, you know, as usual, mm -hmm. as you would expect, pretty epic. There were two broadcasting kind of bits of coverage and there was something else. And that's OK, you know, because all we did was simply mark the fact it was like a placeholder. We're marking the fact that this was rubbish and that people still care. I mean, obviously, this was somewhat aided by Alan Smith's jobby remark, which I have to say, when he made it, I was a little I was on stage mm -hmm. and he talked about Brexit. Nobody can polish that jobby. And I thought, God almighty. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, it was quite amusing afterwards to see uh, like Yahoo, for example, had changed the spelling of the aforementioned word 
twice. <laughs> they were really quite uncertain about how to cover this. And of course, Alan then went on to make headlines for entirely different reasons, which we'll probably come on to with the uh, seemingly endless kind of infighting that seems to be happening within the SNP mm. at the moment about, you know, MPs or candidates not yeah. standing if they don't toe the line on the gender recognition stuff. But anyway, on that night, there was... I mean, really, the thing is, the most some of the most memorable speeches were actually from the Europeans who are here. Um, there's a lovely, she's a French citizen. She was born in Mali. She was standing in for me when I had a month off. Uh, Asa Samaki Roman, uh, who's a, a writer. Um, there was also a Portuguese-born councillor, Martha Matos, Matos Coelho. And actually, the real stars of the piece were the, the, the two that set up Europe for Scotland, um, Andre, Andrea Pissarro and Janina Yetter. Uh, now, these two, who are a couple, they live in Oxford. They came all the way up from Oxford to speak for five minutes. Um, mm. They had three cancelled trains. The fourth one was redirected via Glasgow. Uh, and poor Nina, I was looking round at her standing there. She'd got wee gym shoes on. I sort of thought, God, lass, you know, there's somebody that's just not really come to grips with what Scotland yeah. can truly be like in January, you know. And she was hopping from foot to foot on the grass because at the last minute, uh, the Scottish Parliament authorities, for whatever reason, decided that we couldn't be situated on the hard bit outside the Scottish Parliament and had to be redirected and set the stage up completely, facing away from the Parliament um, on the grass bit round the side, which meant everybody got their feet wet. Yeah. Uh, then there were some people from some other department of the Parliament came out and said, oh, you'll trackle the law. And we were going, well, it's not our choice. Tipped. You know what I mean? Yes. We've been we've been chipped over here. So uh, and the the uh, the 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 torchlit procession down the hill was quite something uh, and quite something given that these light, these torches, which are apparently almost impossible to put out once lit, you know, <laughs> uh, were actually going out all the time with the wind that was whistling on these guys as they came down the hill. Um, so that it was kind of, it almost was um, an embodiment of the difficulty that you have trying, you know, talk about fighting for your right to party. But when you saw these guys coming down the hill, it was a, tr it was a tremendous visual thing. And as they entered and suddenly bolstered the numbers that were there and the people who were there were noisy, colorful, they brought banners, uh, you know, it was it was actually really heartening to see people pitch up just enough, basically, to make, yes, just that, a sort of marker to say we can do this in the worst conditions we can come out and we can still speak to one another with with real, I mean, affection, because the points that were being made, especially by uh, Nina from Europe for Scotland, was just she actually said at one point that progressives in England and the rest of Europe are totally heartened by the kind of stances that Scotland automatically takes. And I mean, you know, there was a roar that just kind of it was extraordinary because that's what the perspective that you don't get when you're sitting here stewing in the juices of all the kind of micro mistakes or even yeah. macro mistakes that are coming from a Scottish government from slightly further afield. People just look for just even, for example, still. Um, as as Amber Rudd has now, you know, come out and said that actually, you know, when when Tories have had a couple of Tory cabinet ministers have had a couple of drinks, they admit that Brexit was a terrible mistake. Well, yeah. lordy, lordy, you know, I, I, I mean, they're now slowly managing to get their heads around what a complete cock up they've created. Um, whereas immediately Nicola Sturgeon's response that on the day, practically the day after Brexit, was to reach out to all the European citizens living here who suddenly felt homeless and assuring them that we wanted them to stay and that this would be their home if they wanted it to be. And people heard that outside Scotland. You know, they saw the contrast with this, you know, anybody who's foreign is just a leech, is kind of unwanted. Uh, just looking at everything that's being done now to just m manically cut down anything to do with immigration, no matter what kind of folk you're having in or out. And you contrast that if you're living outside uh, Scotland with the consistent warmth that you hear from the Scottish government towards basically the mixter maxter that makes life possible. So 
it was great to hear that stated again and to hear so many people. I was chatting afterwards to an Italian chap living here um, and wondered he'd been very active back in politics back home as a progressive left, which, you know, ain't easy in Italy at the moment. And I wondered, you know, if he'd thought that he might be going home at one point. And he just turned to me and said, but this is my home. Yeah. And honestly, I could have wept. I mean, it's it's just extraordinary to realise how much Scotland has got going for it in the eyes of people who understand what other what else is on offer in other countries, even their birth countries, their language countries, you know, their family countries. They can still come and see so much going for them here. So thank you so much to everybody who pitched up because you made that happen. And since people have been asking what next, there won't be a sort of reg. You know, we're not doing OK, so next Saturday, let's do something. Um, we'll be waiting till there's an impactful moment again where Scotland will can be in the news and we'll make sure that it is in the news. And when that happens, you'll be the first to know. Great. I mean, and and just to, 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 to continue with it, I hope you don't mind with the Alan Smith analogy that the usual one was that you can't polish a jobby, but you can sprinkle uh, gold dust on it to make it sparkle a wee bitty and I think that's what's going on currently with uh, with not just the Conservative Party but the Labour Party in particular it is it is that and it's a job I'm sorry just no 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 let's just stop the jobby analogies because okay. honestly it's too vivid all I can see is something I <laughs> oh, well, don't want well, to see well, in my mind's eye well, whether it's I mean, sprinkled with anything or not right so yeah. the end okay. right the Alan end. Okay. You, you just take that analogy yes, and put well, it where I, the sun don't yes. shine Oh, that, stop that now! You're going back to the the you origin see, of the job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but anyway, it's terrific. But I mean, well, again, this is I I regret what I'm going to do here to a certain extent because we've we've talked about the lights on for Scotland and and the way my mind works. I try and get these links going in here, and I thought I thought I came up with a a really snappy one, which is you know talking about keeping lights on. Your recent article in the Herald was all about the forced entry and the the, the uh, utilities, the energy crisis that's going on, and people who are forced entry from the the, the, the utility companies to install these prepayment meters. And then part of me, and what I'm going to say here is, part of me went, that's in a totally inappropriate part to actually come up with a a snappy link. You know, that's going to work for the podcast. That that glosses over the appalling situation we've got to, where there's sanctioned breaking and entering to the poorest and most vulnerable homes of people who are struggling to pay their energy bills, which are about to go up again by 40%, given the fact of the withdrawal of the £400 per household in March and the lifting of the, the energy cap again. I bet it's even worse than that. Because, I mean, just working backwards, um, I, I heard just as we were beginning there that actually there's been an underclaiming of for everybody who's on a direct debit, you, mm-hmm. it's all sorted out so that you basically don't play, pay and reclaim. You're just finding you're paying less at the moment. I am anyway. Yeah. Um, right. So that's how it's done. If you're on a prepayment meter, you're sent out some sort of voucher system, which oh, you yeah. then have to go in and, and apply to use. Um, if you don't claim it or you lose it or whatever, you then have to go back to the energy company, ask for permission to get it reissued and then go back in and try to get it used against your prepayment meter bill. So that this is the point. It's always different. But let's just be blunt about this. It's the poor, by and large. Yeah. Who have got the prepayment meter. So what we're saying is for people who have got a bank account, a steady income and therefore opt for direct debits, you're going to have an easy passage through this because the discount the British government have applied just works automatically. But if you're poor, you have it all to do. So that's yeah. why there's 50 million sitting unclaimed at the moment by people who are desperate not because they're sitting kind of their feet up watching Netflix, which is the kind of suggestion that's yeah. coming from people like the, uh, you know, the the energy regulator, which is just shocking to hear some of the analogies and excuses that have been coming out around this. Um, but but because the system is so blinking difficult. Uh, but anyway, to get to the point about the prepayment stuff, what I was just staggered by was how this managed to pop into the news, you know, get a little bit of a rustle of kind of what? 
And then, you know, just got eclipsed within a day or two and we're back to just business as usual. And this has an impact on what we're saying at the beginning about the uh, cabinet reshuffle that's happening even as we speak, um, which everyone is is saying will, in fact, Rishi Sunak has said that he wants to create a new post of energy security secretary, which is kind of, and it's it's likely to be Grant Shapps. Now, oh, hold great. that thought. Um, because, you know, energy security, the whole thing to do with energy, just wait, we waved goodbye to effective control over energy in 1985 when Margaret Thatcher privatised energy. Yeah. And policy since then, in every shape and form, has been basically produced by the big six um, and by BP and Shell, who, as yes. we know, have just posted record profits. So great. Now, what British Gas were found to have done uh, last week uh, by an ex- excellent bit of sting investigation by The Times um, was that they have been they've been getting warrants in their tens of thousands to get into people's houses, sometimes when they're in there cowering in the corner, sometimes when they're out at work um, to put, to basically forcefully install prepayment meters <clears throat> Uh, because they look like they are at risk of defaulting on their on their bills, which is basically disconnecting families or encouraging yes. them to self disconnect. So hey, it's nothing to do with us, mate. Because ooh, look, they they didn't manage to keep their prepayment meters going. That's not our fault. You know, they just didn't manage to cough up the the, the money. But the net result is that people will be left to freeze. And you can use whatever variant of company speak you want to describe that. That's what it is. Um, You know, there's been some kind of eyebrows raised about all of this. But the most extraordinary thing about it really is, um, is that anybody's surprised that this is what energy companies do. It's 10 years exactly since the mis-selling scandal. And in Mm -hmm. case anyone's forgotten that one, that's the one where companies, you know, all of them, SSE, the whole lot were found to have deliberately encouraged people onto more expensive tariffs. And these were, again, usually the vulnerable, um, encouraged onto higher than necessary tariffs so that they could basically be fleeced by companies that were making billions of pounds of profit. And it was that mis-selling scandal in 2013 which prompted subsequently a conservative government watching. And I mean, you know, let's say these guys seem to be no, no, have no particular problem about companies making squillions of profit. But even the Tories actually brought in a price cap because they could see how relentless these guys were at basically screwing their customers if there wasn't some form of restraint. And it's strange that nobody raises that fact when we're talking about where the price cap is, that, you know, without the price cap, these guys were like vultures. Yeah. And here they are again, absolutely like vultures, because what they were meant to do, um, supposedly, is that they were meant to make a vulnerability assessment before they were able to apply to a magistrate's court, since most of this happened in England, but there'll be sheriff courts, you know, the same as Scotland, mm-hmm. um, to be able to break in, basically, and just decide that somebody's electricity was effectively going to be disconnected. Um, it seems that, oh, dear, they didn't make these vulnerability assessments properly. Well, do. I mean, what 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 sort of section of the population do you imagine regularly falls behind with payments? Yes. You know, will it be people who actually have difficulty paying for reasons of poverty? Probably. And are they therefore vulnerable? Mm, yeah. And is that any concern at all of energy companies in, in this kind of marketplace that you can basically get away with whatever you want to do? Not in the least. And actually what was happening is the system was working perfectly as it was intended because these prepayment meters are essentially a cosh on the head of poor customers to get them off the books. And, you know, why this isn't uh, a matter of absolute outrage beats me, except that does, is it too complicated? Have we so given up on the idea that energy, like every other proper democracy in Northern Europe, is, is generally a, a publicly owned asset? The utter irony that EDF were doing this when EDF are a French government owned company where the French have a publicly it's a publicly yes. owned energy system whose whose 
whose uh, price increases have averaged 4%, while Britain's has been 113%. So, you know, it, it, it really does kind of beggar belief, all of this. And then the kicker on all of this, just while we're at it, is that within um, the bill for a prepayment meter is um, is is the uh, standing charge. Yes. And actually, once again, standing charges uh, are more if you're on a prepayment system than if you're on a direct debit system. And if you it, those pre the standing charges keep continuing on, even if you have self disconnected because you can't afford to put your lucky on, basically, so that even when you kind of come back into uh, even if you're given a voucher to help you get back into uh, the red, as it were, onto you know, get, getting your electricity working again, the standing charges you've clocked up while you had no electricity will mean that you can't actually get going again. So that, you know, th this is really unbelievable. Plus, the, the companies, in case anybody sort of makes out, oh, we don't really know how that happened. Well, these companies um, were using subcontractors who were being paid basically bonuses by the number of meters they were installing. Yeah. So all of it is utter sharp practice and and comes as well. Uh, an observation from the, the ex-boss of NPower uh, noted that the the number of these prepayment meters going in soared when the regulator basically outlawed winter disconnections. Okay. I just think about yeah. that. This is what they do because what what the companies do is they just they 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 look for a loophole when they're clamped down on in one way they try and you know they raise their charges in the bit of the the bill that they can actually fiddle. Um, and all of this is just it's so utterly predictable. And I mean, here is in the midst of this Grant Shapps, who we will probably hear by the time you are listening to this podcast, may well be our you know, the man who's going to save us from ourselves, the energy security guru. Well, he's currently the business secretary. And, uh, you know, he his his reply to all of this uh, is that the regulator is having the wool pulled over his eyes by taking at face value what energy companies are telling them. Well, yeah. and, and what are you going to do about it? Yeah. What? Because, you know, it'll be nothing because it can be relatively little. What he could do is, you know, there's a couple of things he could do. One, he could just scrap prepayment meters or he could abolish standing charges on prepayment meters or they could knock themselves out completely and they could renationalize energy supply, you yeah. know, or somebody, the SNP or Labour, or somebody who's just feeling brave today, like a broadcaster, could actually ask whether the situation we're in now with energy insecurity, with freezing families, with forced entry to install uh, prepayment meters, whether all of that is a consequence of a privatized energy system that doesn't work. But you yeah. won't hear it. You will not hear it. And the other thing, Leslie, is that we've got to the, the root cause of it. Not only are energy prices soaring and gas prices have come down since the autumn, but off Gemma turned around and says, ah, yeah, but they could go back up again. Oh, well, duh, that's going to be it. That's going to be terrific use of everybody. They've come down because energy prices are pegged to the gas price. We're, we're hamstrung by that. But the reality is that the, the reason why people get into debt is because we have not only have privatised utilities, but a privatised society whereby the uh, people uh, people's pay has not gone up any way, shape or form in order to keep pace with inflation, to keep pace with the keeping the necessities of life together. And when you compare and contrast, as has been done recently, the relative poverty of the poorest people in the UK in comparison to the poorest countries in Europe, we're at the bottom of the league in that. So people are paid badly, they're treated badly, and we've got privatised utilities, which is screwing the life out of them. I mean, the big six made over seven billion in profit in the five years, 2017 to 2022. I mean, they're coining it. And as you said, exactly, they will always find a way around the fact because you keep putting a put, let's put pressure on here and we'll stop that. And lo and behold, the pressure reappears everywhere else because their only interest is in dividends and profit. Any reality of 
you know, uh, social purpose has gone out the window. The CEO, Chris O'Shea, said of Centrica, I'm really, really sorry. We have clearly got it wrong. And uh, we are going to fix that. This yeah, is not I think he had got another great line. Yeah, that's not. I mean, honest to God, yeah. that's what made me write this article because I was almost throwing things at the walls. How how is this allowed to be? How are we allowing these guys to speak like this and not just throw things at them when they're in studios? It's just, I yeah yeah I know how I can imagine how exhausted everyone gets because they this is just. It's like getting something, some some chewing gum stuck on your finger and you try and take it off and yeah. it's the other finger. Then you try and scoop it off onto a bit of paper and it's stuck onto that and your finger. And it's like this disgusting mess that we're in with the the, the, the provision of, of public services uh, thanks to the slow unwinding mess that was always going to happen. This car crash that was has been, what, 20, 30 years in the making, slowly rumbling its way through from all those privatisations. This is an economy that is completely out of control. There's no shape to it. The, the essentials are basically being bartered by a bunch of spivs. Yeah. Um, there, there is. And what, what makes me just not able to listen eventually to practically anything is listening to intelligent people not get cutting to the chase on any of these issues about the type of ownership there is. You know, when we have all this discussion today, as it, you will now hear about this energy security minister, um, who will raise the fact that, that the energy security, even on things like gas and oil in this company country, are completely dependent on private investments about storage facilities, given that yes. the government you know, gave up the ghost on that. Totally dependent, even if they go ahead and dr drill new wells, on the spot price that emerges the day that they, those fossil fuels are finally extracted. And if they're not high enough here, they'll go elsewhere. Where is the security, even in the old fossil fuel world, that can be applied by grand bloody chaps or any of these guys over systems they've set up, which just let basically let the market go rip? And you'd have to throw in here. I mean, I've been reading the analysis there is about the Scotwind auction, um, mm. which is something that the Scottish government, in conjunction with the Crown Estate in Scotland, has been involved with. You'll have seen, doubtless, it's some of the many headlines that make for very depressing reading, actually, in most of the what you would have to now call unionist press. Um, but it's based on a, a on a pretty thorough analysis made by Common Wheel. And again, you'd have to stop to say, this is the first time I've seen Common Wheel given big licks in any paper yeah. for the excellent analysis <laughs> that they do of all sorts of things. And it's strange that it happens to be on the one that is most critical of the Scottish government. But basically, they're saying that the the auction of the licences uh, to, to put wind turbines offshore um, was hugely undersold. There was a cap placed on the amount that could be uh, that, that that each kilometre could go for of 100,000 quid. Um, and the similar sales in England and in the States did not have an upper cap and raised a hell of a lot more. Mm. Um, all of the, the, they initially started off with a cap of 10,000 quid. And then when they noticed what everything else was going for, they thought, Jings, we're making a mistake here and upped it. So actually, every, one was sold at that 10,000 before they realised what mistake they'd made. So all of the rest of them, I think it was 17, I can't remember offhand, all went for the maximum 100,000, which rather implies they could have got more. And if they had got more, they could have had some income that could have set up a Scottish energy yes. company, which actually could have been the instrument for, for actually extracting or doing a lot of the wind turbine they could have been one of the companies following the norwegian model where the norwegians with oil not only got money from other companies that came in from you know, further the parish to drill for oil but they became uh, their own company stat oil so that they were actually they were actually in there drilling too so they got a double treble whammy out of what they had um, the Scottish government at the moment, the reason they're saying they are not setting up a, an energy company is because they don't have borrowing powers, so they couldn't properly finance it. And Commonweal concede that that's true, but but point out that um, this, if this had been a proper bumper income, it could have been used to pr pump prime that as a company, and that could have started to guarantee work and 
and get much, yeah. much more out of the production chain than than it looks like they're going to get. Now, on the other hand, uh, the Scottish government and the Crown Estate are saying that they put that price where it is so that the resulting offshore wind energy would not ch- be fleecing the customer. And they're mm. also saying that it was more difficult to, they know it's more difficult to put anything into our sector of the North Sea than in slightly shallower sectors elsewhere. And they're factoring that in. But still, you know, you look at that and say, hey, that's perhaps something, if this is going to be a market-led decision, then perhaps that's something that you leave the market to decide. So that is kind of depressing because it does look like that wasn't a that wasn't well handled. And it looks like it was an opportunity that's gone, albeit yeah. that this round, as far as I can see, and I haven't read right into this, uh, within 10 years, there's going to there will be more rounds. And then you look at the way the coverage has gone, because far from it being a question of of Scotland now being at the forefront of floating wind technology in the world with that announcement, which it is. I mean, the mm. amount of of, yeah. of of wind turbines that are going out there, and I can't remember the proportion, but it's very high of floating wind, which is an important jump in te- in construction terms. If we can get that right, the floating wind, then that's something that can get exported elsewhere, but only if we're making it. Yes. <laughs> um, so this should have been, an un- and it was, you know, when it was announced, there was a lot of good news attached to it, but not the amount of, you know, exuberant, let's, call it from the rooftops uh, uh, kind of good news as the absolute sort of downer bad news that's being applied now to the fact more could have been extracted from that sale. And I don't know now. I mean, we were talking about this before we came on air. You know, I don't know if this is just where we've got to in a news cycle where there is almost now just a, a sort of deliberate attempt but it's not even deliberate. It's news. This is news. Yes, this news. is an actual fact. The question is sort of that if you if you have got some good news story, which is also a fact, it tends to get buried in page five. And when there's a problem like this, it's right there on page one. Um, yeah. You can quibble about that. Those sets of news values. Actually, bad news always shifts more papers than than good news, no matter who does it. But yeah, energy, energy security. It's just it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a learning curve. But if I had, you know, any 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 kind of choice in the matter, I would have no hesitation in saying that the British government over all these years have just proven themselves completely unfit to be in charge of any aspect of our security. Yeah, I mean, it was it when you you mentioned uh, back at Shell and BP that 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 triggers something that I, I read I read uh, I think it was last week about Shell's profits doubling to. Wait, wait, you hear it? Over 32 billion. This is a figure I could barely get my head around. And what what then led on from it, um, because there's a whole thing going on in the European Union to do with a a green industrial strategy and an energy plan in response to the um, what Biden is doing in the states. But if you leave it up to private enterprise, they've given I think it's about eight times more back in dividends and buybacks than they've done on renewables. And they keep, you know, punting this whole thing of uh, we're playing our part and we, we you know, we, the windfall tax is appalling because that's stopping us investing in renewables. And the US Congress has just got a whole cache of emails that actually turned around and said that, that uh, our z- net zero goals have nothing to do with our business plans. So if we're leaving up to private enterprise to treat customers properly, if we're leaving up to private enterprise to sort out the the climate catastrophe, we're we're barking up the wrong tree. It cannot be left to market forces. There has to be government intervention. It has to be competent government intervention. And the likelihood of competent government intervention on any level, as we have identified from uh, from the, 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 the past umpteen years of conservative government is highly unlikely. And as I say, but back in the, the thing, at least on the surface level from Chris O'Shea of Centrica, we got an apology. But uh, I think it's now 110 days uh, that Liz Truss 
since Liz Truss resigned. Uh, she eventually, yesterday, the, an interview came out, which was interviewed by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson of The Spectator. It's up on YouTube. And uh, her great statement was, I didn't get everything right. Now, let's just start one hang there. I didn't get everything right. And uh, it's kind uh, other one was kind of a, a big boy did it and ran away. And the big laddies are the Office of Budget Responsibility. Because, you know, we this was set up to be independent. And lo and behold, because it's independent and it has a significant uh, status within the markets, that's what blew us. You know, that's what blew the mini budget. It was the civil servants. It was the social democratic consensus that exists right across the, the economists in the markets, a social democratic consensus amongst asset managers, of course, and a social democratic consensus even within the Treasury and her own party. So it's Abri's fault but hers that this all went wrong. And right at the pinnacle, she said, was the media were against her. The media, you know, the Daily Express, who hailed this, the mini-budget, as the greatest thing since sliced bread. Now's the woman, now's the hour, says the Daily Mail. At last, a Tory budget, a real Tory budget, said said the Daily Mail again. The Telegraph was all on side with her. The Sunday Telegraph was all on side with her. But the smart money was with the Times and the Sun, who kept their powder dry. The Times said, no, we're going with Sunak, and the Sun stayed neutral. But it is, it is the great sloughing off of never taking responsibility. And she constantly throughout the interview said, well, my view was this, my view was that. And then somebody else's view was the other. And uh, it was a it was an exercise in, in self-justification, which appears to be an absolute lack of self-analysis and a total adherence to the ideology of small government, low taxes. And she said, but the weather was against us and the establishment. It was almost the deep state, you know, of Donald Trump was against me. And that's what done me in other than. The a whole thing to do with pension funds, which I'm not going to go into because it's incredibly complex. Unless you want to, unless you want to know more about it. Yeah, I've got to say, I just didn't even bother watching. I mean, you know, what's the point? This, I mean, it, it's somebody. I think it might well, have been Nicola Sturgeon who said, actually, isn't she a little bit of an attention seeker? I mean, really. Mm. When it comes to it, the, the, it's extraordinary. I think many Tories commented that they were astonished that somebody who had basically you know, reduced the stock of her own party so utterly, yeah. hugely, comprehensively and kind of almost permanently that they'll win, lose the next election now for sure, uh, has got the audacity to perk up after just, I don't know, how long is it since she was removed? You know, 100 days maybe yeah. or something? Just over, you know, they yeah. All imagine she would keep her head down until, you know, actually after the next election and just eat essentially eat humble pie. But then the question is more, you know, rather than whatever, honestly, nonsense she came up with in her unapologetic 4000 word essay or something, is why? Why? You know, yes. Why? Why would she actually come out with all this? I mean, she she said she doesn't want another <laughs> she doesn't want another crack at going for PM. Well, whoop, whoop, then, you know, everybody who was on the edge of their seats hoping that there would be another trust bid, you know, is now disappointed. So it wasn't that because, you know, obviously not. Um, I have to say, I have seen the, the 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 thinking that she's actually paving the way for Boris to make Boris, a comeback. That, yes. You know, so, so I mean, and dear knows if that's the one that's because, you know, as, as men again, many commentators have, adver have observed, if you go around the country, you never hear anybody saying, oh, I wish that nice Liz Truss could come back again. Whereas there are still some dunderheads about that, you know, that, that long for the tousled one at the helm again and the, you know, Latin and Greek analogies and the bluster, the kind of sense you were going somewhere if you didn't quite know what it was. They want all that back. They want him. And um, so she says she's kind of in there because the uh, the sort of small state idea is not being argued for properly by anyone. And then you think, well, OK, fair enough. You, you talk, you're talking about a small state at a moment of an energy crisis created by your small state. Yeah. It's the small state that, sh that just shore off all the responsibilities of governance to do with energy, just the prime thing that a country needs. So, you 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 know, Thatcher got rid of all of that to, in the name of this small state where private enterprise could be trusted to do everything else. 
look where we are now, matey. Um, so, so there you are. A lot of the spending that's had to happen by your government has had to be to shore up uh, businesses and households from bankruptcy because of an energy security problem that is partly to do with Ukraine, for sure, and very largely to do with making no preparations whatsoever to wean people off fossil fuels in a country awash with renewables. So didn't start. But no. presumably this is some sort of bid and there's wee ginger groups set, set it up now for her small state. Can not mind the names of them? Because what's the point? There's millions. I mean, the Conservatives have got more blooming subspecies in them than a beehive of worker bees at the moment. It's just unbelievable how splintered that party is. So here's another little grouping around Liz Trust, the small state and whatever else it is. Of course, none of this helps Rishi Sunak particularly, but I mean, mm. what would, uh, as, as he's trying to kind of keep this impression of having a kind of talented bunch of people trying to kind of just quickly jump over uh, Nadim Zahawi's disappearance, as predicted, uh, very quickly. And the reshuffle today is an attempt to sort of make a virtue of necessity, which is that now that he's got a hole in the Conservative Party chair position, he has to shuffle someone around. Mm. Everybody thinks it'll be Greg Hans, who I think is the Trade Secretary. There's a gap there. So off you go, shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. And of course, he now needs to look like he's serious about uh, about energy, and that's hence this uh, this idea. The the other, I mean, I'm constantly looking to see what do, announcements have been made. But the other speculation is that Kem, Kemi Badenoch, that well-known progressive left winger, mm -hmm. uh, will be uh, the new business and trade secretary, as in the new Grant Shapps. So whoop whoop, Scotland, look at these people, look at them. Yeah. You know, does yeah. any of that does any of that look like it's gonna? <sighs> You know, there's also going to be a new science and technology job. I wonder what people will, you know, from from the academic world will feel who are, are basically pointing out that that Brexit has has completely dried up all sorts of research funding. I mean, even the the the, the jewels in the crown of the British establishment, Oxbridge, are saying that their research funding is just drying up completely because nobody wants to put money into Britain. So. Knock yourselves out, guys. You know, you're sitting with all sorts of structural problems you've created for yourselves and you're going to put a few more lieutenants with kind of tassely bits in their shoulders out on the deck to reassure people that all is well. Mm. I'll be intrigued to see what happens uh, if the Northern Ireland Secretary remains secretary from Northern Ireland, given the fact of the there looks to be an inching towards uh, a rapprochement with the European Union over the Northern Ireland Protocol with the introduction of these red and green lanes for goods, you know, uh, coming into Northern Ireland, one staying in Northern Ireland from, from GB and others going to the Republic of Ireland and other destinations within the European Union. Because I think Sunak's going to be under incredible pressure from the, the hardline Brexiteers on that. And it's just going to become more and more apparent that he cannot square the circle and keep all these people on board. And again, it's intriguing to listen to, to Liz Truss, who, start, who was a, a rabid Remainer, coming out as a, the hardest of hardline Brexiteers during that interview. Um, but uh, again, but we, we talk about it, Leslie, it's the, the absolute shambles that there is in Westminster we, and all the things that may be going on in terms of energy price rises. We've got uh, wave after wave of strikes. We've got the, the necessity of people going on strike because of what's been happening in the public sector. Uh, we've got the Supreme Court decision. And Mark Smith picked up on this in the Herald saying, with all this going on, the latest, it's only one poll, the Sunday Times poll, has got the the figures which the SNC should be concerned about in terms of uh, Nicola Sturgeon's approval, gone from plus seven to minus four. But even though she still remains the far, by far the most popular leader in Scotland, um, Holyrood constituency dropped from 50% to 44%. From the regional list, 40% to 36%. It seems to be independence has slipped from 53% a month ago, support, to 47%. And it, it does actually beg the question at this point, you know, given all the maelstrom of the appalling situation that Keith Brown said, you know, look at just look at what's going on in, in Westminster and look at the resources that Scotland has that we know about. That's the route to independence. 
But as is Mark Smith suggested, is there a trick being missed in not taking hold of devolution and doing as much as you possibly can with devolution and the powers that you have in order, not from his perspective, but from our perspective, the people who support independence, of actually saying, look at what we can do with what we've got. Look how we are improving your lives and lives are being improved. Think how much more we could do if we had all these other levers of power. Yeah, the the thing that struck me from this this column, and I, I guess that most most people don't have a Herald subscription, so they probably don't you know don't read this kind of commentary that's going on, but but this kind of commentary is kind of saying that there's a middle way here, and that the likes of former Green MSP Robin Harper, um, he of the colourful scarf and much else besides, mm. um, has been has been trying to say that there should be just a, a kind of push to try to kind of um, uh, win, win more powers from Westminster. I mean, honestly, even as I speak, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah. what? You know, um, uh, yes, the Scottish government has centralised too much. Yes, the committee system at Holyrood is useless. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, no, no disagreement there. And his conclusion is what Scottish politics really needs is a few years of peace. Peace. Now, mm. that... You know, that seems extremely appealing, actually. I'm sure everybody just feels, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just knackered. The amount of stuff, you know, I thought during the independence referendum, the amount of knowledge that you needed to have about things to, to basically be able to sort of navigate your way through a, an average morning was stratospheric. It was like going from somebody who used to just get into a car, you know, turn the ignition and drive to somebody who then needed to understand how the camshaft worked, you know, how all the inner parts of it worked. And and actually, that's pretty much impossible. But now the amount of knowledge you seem to need to kind of be able to get through the average mm-hmm. kind of discussion, you've got a perspective from within the independence movement that's critical of what the SNP is up to. You've got Alba. You've got the unionist press. You've got seven shades of whatever there is from the various unionist politicians. You've got commentators. There's there's a massive amount of stuff you would need to know to come up with any sort of decision about how you think Scot- Scottish politics could move forward. And peace, you know, the peace that you would get by finally r- arriving somewhere. Yep, that would be a hugely a massively appealing thing to be able to just go, do you know, today I'm going to go out and look at the birds. Yes. I'm going to go out and do a bit of gardening. I'm just going to go out and worry about nothing. I might write a book about some obscure aspect of, um, you know, a polar expedition undertaken by Friedolf Nansen in 1894. But no, none of that's possible because you have to keep attending to where we are in history and where we are is on the brink of something. Yes. So, you know, we're stuck with this. The, the the ante is being upped. It certainly is. The length of time the SNP's been in, they're making mistakes. Yes, they are. Um, there is fractiousness within the camp because we're not moving forward. That's absolutely true. There is an SNP big bust com- conference coming up at which they will have to decide in their characteristically leadership-led way um, which way they progress, whether it's a de facto referendum for a general election or a Hollywood election and quite what it entails as a result of it. I mean, all of that is going to have to be decided and there will inevitably be criticism of that um, and even more speculation about how long Nicola Sturgeon will last in the job. And this unpeaceful place is where we are. Um, there's no getting out of it. Uh, you know, there's there is no there's no there's no the, the light at the end of the tunnel has got to be that the, the, the resolution to this is what those who listen to this podcast understand to be possible and have visualised and glimpsed and sense. And what I find myself writing about increasingly in the book that I'm slogging away mm-hmm. at still um, is just quite how much when you take all of this snash away, what you see beneath it is a sort of bedrock of a settled will developing amongst all politicians in Scotland about everything practically except independence and the impossibility of that, that the tilt, the social democratic tilt of most of that fitting into a UK that is like uh, a far hard right uh, sort of kind of, you know, I hesitate to sort of tar Poland mm. hungry with the brush, but yeah. with, you know, a sort of sinking a sinking ship of a country, a spiteful sinking ship of a country, it can't fit. So, you know, we've got to keep 
fine. You can go on about this middle ground that doesn't exist. You can go on about the, all the proposals, you know, that somebody might come up with one day that not even Gordon Brown actually put on the table when mm-hmm. he finally delivered his long awaited, you know, co- blueprint for co- constitutional change. You can do all of that, but you still end up with the reality that we're not essentially in a peaceful position here because we have got no resolution that's worthy of the name and that will last for more than 10 minutes. And there isn't one. There isn't one within the existing carve up, except this constant proliferation of detail, confusion, split responsibilities, blaming one another. You know, some people will think, yeah, the solution to that is just to kind of remove the Scottish government, Scottish parliament and just go back to being a vassals of the uh, British state. I think that boat has uh, has sailed. Mm-hmm. So once that has sailed, there is only one destination, and that is dry land. And that's the piece I'm looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Because when we were speaking beforehand, I mean, it is that, that whole thing of being driven down and the headlines that are coming through. And you've made the point absolutely clearly is the fact that this is a government. The SNP is a government. It's a government that's been in power for so many years now that inevitably there will be there'll be an own way. There will be errors that are made. But these errors are going to be continually amplified. Divisions will be exaggerated. And people have got to get back to focus on the issue. And the issue solely is independence, because when we take a look at what the way it is going in the rest of the UK and the likelihood even under a Labour government, particularly of Brexit not being reversed and the economic and social damage that is going to do to us, there is no way that we're going to get growth and there is no way we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of the perilous economic situation in that has led people to have to go out on strike, that is leading to people living in fuel poverty within the British state as it currently exists. It is only through independence. And again, I just as an individual would wish that the Scottish government would do as much as it could with this devolved powers and things that we've talked about in terms of land reform, in terms of the, the, the reform of local government, which is so central to giving power back to people in the local communities that enables them to see what can be done by them. And giving that instance of power to them can see what can happen and you can filter that upwards to becoming an independent state and give people the power at level, local levels. And we are in that position where where I'm sure people out there are feeling that way in the depths of February, even though the light is now getting better in the morning and it's staying lighter at night. We all feel that way, folks, but we've got to stick to the task. And as you said, Leslie, we can all say geese peace, but the only peace that will come to Scotland as a country and Scotland as a political entity will be through the resolution of the constitutional question. And that will only come through independence. But uh, just to say, newsflash, um, as as predicted, the aforementioned underwhelming people are now the new secretaries of state in this reshuffle. So Grant Shapps is the energy security and net zero hero. <laughs> uh, Michelle Donnellan is um, secretary of state for science, innovation and technology. Uh, she was the one who came in in the wake of Nadine Doris and decided not to privatise Channel 4. So, you know, a woman who can U-turn is all you can say about her. <laughs> Kemi Badenoch is Secretary of State for Business and Trade uh, and Minister for Women and Equalities. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And Lucy Fraser comes in as the new Culture Secretary. Now, if that rings a vague bell with you, uh, she is the one uh, who Solicitor General um made a a joke about enslaved Scots during her maiden speech in 2015, where she she's actually the MP for South East Cambridgeshire. And she she said in that maiden speech, Cambridgeshire is the home of Oliver Cromwell, who defeated the Scots at Dunbar, incorporated Scotland into his protectorate and transported the Scots as slaves to the colonies. Now, there is an answer to the West Lothian question, but not one that, of course, I would recommend. Mm. which, of course, then sort of sent all her Tory colleagues into yeah. you know, massive laughter. So anyway, Dem, that's the profile of folk that we've got at the top there, folks. And, uh, you know, I think you can safely predict we're not going to see any change to the underlying problems of this state in that lineup whatsoever. New faces, and they're not even new. They've just been yeah. reshuffled around. So, I mean... You know, in as in as far as anybody kind of uh, t- tags who is which particular 
directorate um, each of these people um, runs. Uh, you may have a slight sense of deja vu as they pop up now with a slightly different sudden set of expertise in a different department. But come on, you know, this yeah. this is going to make no difference whatsoever to the stuckness of uh, of where the British government's at. Anyway, yeah. sorry, I did interrupt. No, 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 not, not at all. Because, I mean, uh, I, I, it's one of the things that, that has been happening and I've seen it and I know you, you, you've you been watching it, uh, is that people have been getting a lot of enjoyment out what, what looks to me an extremely depressing and grim television series, Happy Valley. And uh, if there's ever a misnomer, I think, from what I've seen of the programme, it's absolutely it. But you, but you love it and you've been watching it. Well, I, I've been a bit late to it as well, and I'm not quite sure why, but people have been so loving it that I thought, well, I should have a look at this. And it, it is quite remarkable, actually. I mean, it is, you know, it is totally a, a sort of grim situation, but it's a very real grim situation in which, without wishing to spoil it for anyone, because I've only one series in and there seems to be many, um, but the character at the centre of it, this policewoman played by Sarah Lancashire, is basically like a Yorkshire mother courage if this oh, means right. anything to people yeah. in that she has the world on her back. She she's managing every kind of pressure and and the pressure that comes from living in a society that's awash with drugs in rural little towns tucked away in, you know, Yorkshire Vales or wherever this this mm-hmm. is supposed to be set. Um, and just all the problems that that normally come with 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 being a polis. But it investigates a lot of her own kind of home life the strains that there are within all of that. I mean, it really is excellent. And she is the reason that I think it's captivated so many people. There are there are not the, the turns in the story are quite unpredictable and characters certainly develop in very unusual de- directions. They're not all heroes. She is snaps is well, not surprisingly, kind of with the pressure she's under. Generally, she's she she comes good every time. But the kind of just the ordinary everyday heroism of the kind of character who is never going to be put forward for any kind of, you know, gong, but but actually holds just the world together with the levels of strain and stress created by forces that are completely beyond her control in a in a sort of stoic, endless kind of way for no thanks. My God, I know I'm not selling this to anybody who thinks they want to see something cheery. There is, there is there is something just tremendously uplifting, though. It's, it's almost like someone finally telling it like it is, you know, without any pulling any punches with, you know, with with, with a woman at the centre of this who is in who, who is not just a single parent, but a single grandparent, basically. Uh, it it really is starting to tell some of the stories that don't get normally uh, invested in 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 kind of uh, on TV and drama, and it, it does it in a way that leaves you just quite impressed, well astonished actually at the ability of people to cope with all the struggles of life, um, mostly because of extended families and the kind of support that comes within that. So I think really. I think really everybody would get something out of this. And I don't even need to say that because everyone's already got something out of it. I mean, it's it is so popular. It's pretty much trending on social media the whole time now. Um, So it is quite an extraordinary watch. Yeah. Oh, well, you were were mentioning about extended families there. But uh, it was uh, we had an interesting experience. You know, it's been the Grammys recently. And uh, our granddaughter, Freya Rose, was upstairs on uh, playing an online game uh, with her pal Lula, uh, Lula Hull in uh, in Los Angeles. And I thought, isn't this remarkable? Yeah, it was remarkable because her dad, Tom Hull, Kid Harpoon, uh, and they've got, they, they, they live in Wormit when they, they come back here, got a lovely house just down the road, was uh, at the Grammys receiving uh, the, an award for producing Harry Styles' album that won Best Album of the Year, beating Beyonce, Harry's House. So there you go. Not only do I have glory by association with a Sony award-winning broadcaster, I've got glory by association through my granddaughter with the guy who's just won a Grammy. Even though I don't listen to Harry Styles, I have no idea what the album's like, but a a pal of uh, my daughter's, Tom Hall, Kid Harpoon, 
has just won a Grammy, which is utterly remarkable. So that gave me a wee cheery up. I don't know if he'll ever push me into listening to any of his music, but it was it was just nice. And uh, there we go. Yeah. So fame for Northeast Five. <laughs> a, a North, <laughs> North, the, the courier, Northeast Five Man wins Grammy. <laughs> and just while we're on a, a sort of upbeat note, I should just say thank you so much to everybody who came up, especially at the, the kind of Lights On rally and elsewhere, to say how much they like listening to this podcast. And I mean, it's it's very, very touching, actually. And it's noticeable, as I said before, hardly anyone comes up and says, I really love that column you wrote. <laughs> it's it's very much I think it the spoken word definitely seems to do something. It's like the kind of chat you would have. If you had a broadcasting system that basically was vaguely in line with half of the opinion in Scotland, mm. you know, in a tiny little one hour nugget. But anyway, thank you so much, everybody who comes up and kind of comments on, on the podcast or feeds in thoughts or whatever. And again, thank you so much to the people who are subscribers in their various forms, because that keeps basically the show on the road. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, folks, uh, from me as well. And talking about keeping the show on the road, we'll see you next week, chums. Bye.